0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Expel. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Adam Storch, leader of the Event and Emerging Risk Examination Team at the SEC, and I welcome back Kelly Kosciuszka of the law firm Schulte, Roth and Zabel. In our conversation, Adam and Kelly demystify the recent alternative data related risk alert and they give some clarity on what alternative data buyers and providers ought to be thinking about if they want to pursue best practice. In other news, I will be moderating a very well-informed panel about using data to understand geopolitical risk in the markets at Beryl Elites in New York on June the 21st. I hope to see many listeners there. So in this episode, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome uh, an old friend and a new one. Um, So let's start with the new one. Uh, We have Adam Storch of the SEC. Welcome, Adam.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having
0: me. You're very welcome. And returning, we have Kelly Kosciuszka of Schulte Roth & Zabel.
2: Thanks for having me back, Mark.
0: You're very welcome. Um, so this is uh, a, a great privilege to have a chance to speak to the SEC, um, which is a institution which many in the market uh, spend a lot of time thinking about, I'm sure. Um, but also to have back Kelly as well, who is a kind of an sec translator in the market if you will of, of kind of advising um clients on 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 likely regulation and path of regulation understanding regulation so i think we've got a really good uh regulation blend today of of, of having the both of you here so um so that's the plan um let's begin i so we've as i said we've had kelly on before so we uh, we guess we're going to skip the introductions of kelly um you can go back and listen to the regulation episode if you want to know more about kelly personally um but let's start with adam so um adam could you just can we just begin by could you introduce uh yourself um your role at the sec what your team does that kind of thing
1: Sure, Uh, and and thanks again for having me. Before I proceed, let me just issue the standard disclaimer uh, that the views I express today are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Commission, the Commissioners, or other members of SEC staff. Uh, So, really, I'm just uh, honored and privileged to be here today, Uh, and really, um, you know, I'm also honored and privileged to be part of a really great organization at the SEC, and and I've spent. Uh, what's now more than half of my professional career, over 10 years in in public service, uh, working for the federal government. Um, My first stint was with the Division of Enforcement uh, from 09 to to '14, and left for a few years and came back uh, and rejoined the Division uh, of Examinations. Uh, And it's really just an incredible uh, organization to work for. And I think something that uh, attracted me to the SEC and has probably kept me at the SEC and probably a lot of other of my colleagues, is that the SEC has a really lofty and important mission. And I think the mission of, of our organization um, drives a lot of us uh, at, at the SEC. And you know, we have kind of a, 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 a three-part mission uh, one, to protect investors. Two, to maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets. And finally, three, to facilitate capital formation. Um, it, it, the capital markets in the United States uh, are, are vast, and our remit and scope of responsibility is, is huge. Uh, and, and when you kind of think about the SEC, uh, an organization of about 4,500 people uh, of which about 1,000 are, are in the exam program, it's pretty incredible what we accomplish. And I'm really proud of the work that we do at the SEC. Um, the, the Division of Examinations, in which I'm part of now, uh, is a, a, about a 1,000 people, a little bit more than 1,000 people, which is uh, second only in size to the Division of Enforcement at about 1,300 people. Um, we have our headquarters in D.C., and the agency has 11 regional offices uh, located throughout the country.
0: Is it a Department of examinations? Is it a, is it a new thing? Has it, been, has it been part of the SEC
1: for a long time? The, the division of examinations, I'm trying to think, I'm I, I probably am going to get this right. I think we just recently celebrated our 25th uh, anniversary uh, so the SEC has been around uh, for for quite a long time, uh, but the, the division of examinations, which was previously known as the Office of Comple- Office of uh, Compliance Inspections and Examinations, um, which is the predecessor to the Division of Examinations, kind of that function has been in existence for about twenty five years.
0: How good how good is your history, Adam? Can you tell me where the SEC came from?
1: Well, we used to actually be part. I think it was uh, 1933. If I'm going to get my my nice. uh, history right, New New, new Deal. Uh, yeah, but a, as I understand it, I think uh, before the SEC was created, we were actually a part of the Federal Trade Commission, mm-hmm. uh, and then we were ultimately kind of created as an independent agency, and and um, you know that that's kind of. The quick history of of the SEC.
0: Yeah, no, it's kind of coming out of the out of the Wall Street crash, perhaps, or a kind of reaction to potentially. That's um, a lot of things happened around then, didn't they? Um, so that's that's interesting. Okay, so um, and what does the Division of Examinations do?
1: So the the division's ob- objectives in support of the SEC's mission is to improve compliance, prevent fraud, monitor risk, and inform policy. And we generally achieve these goals through the execution of conducting thousands of examinations uh, on an annual basis. And those exams provide timely, accurate, and reliable information that assists the SEC in fulfilling its mission. Uh, A lot of people refer to the division of exams as kind of the eyes and ears of the commission. We're really on the front line, interacting with uh, market participants, also kind of we refer to them as registrants, really on a daily basis uh, through our exam work and through our outreach work. I mentioned that we're, we're you know, a, a bit bigger than 1,000 a, a people nationwide in the division of exams, but to give you a sense, the division uh, on an annual basis in, in 2021, you know, most recent fiscal year, we completed over 3,000 examinations and those exams uh, could have a few different outcomes. Can you,
0: before, before we do outcomes, actually, what does an, what does an exam look like?
1: So uh, we have kind of a risk-based approach uh, to figuring out which registrants or market participants we want to examine on an annual basis. And that's an iterative process. Uh, and it's also uh, informed by the priorities that, that I'll talk about in a few minutes where we kind of define... Uh, and articulate publicly our, our priorities, but it's also influenced which firms we examine uh, by uh, n- not just kind of a risk-based approach that's done annually and, and kind of revisited, but also we get uh, tips, complaints, referrals, uh, whistleblower tips, and lots of intelligence from various sources that inform which firms we want to look at on an annual basis And also within those firms, which scope areas or which topics or issues we want to dig into uh, when we're when we're at those market participants in the exam context.
0: Can an exam uh, and I'm I'm thinking of the movies, so forgive me, but can an exam go from a, a, a kind of long-term friendly email saying hi we'd like to come and talk to you and are you available in the next few months type thing versus at the other end of the exam could it be turning up at someone's office unexpected and and saying we're going to look at your papers right now is that does that all count as exams
1: that, that all counts as exams and i would say you know the 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 um in the exam context um it, we it's not necessarily clear to the registrant why we are there, um, you know, whether it is just kind of, you know, they have come up from an exam perspective on our annual risk planning or whether there's a tip, a complaint or a referral or a whistleblower complaint um, that has prompted our exam, which would kind of be more of a cause exam where there's kind of a very specific reason that has resulted in us. Uh, reaching out to the registrant. Uh, so, you know, the, the, there there's lots of reasons um, that could lead to us focusing on a, on a specific firm. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, our starting point on, on exams is one in which we try to understand where the firm is coming from. And in some ways, um, you know, there's, there's a healthy skepticism in the way that we approach exams, Um, But I don't think it needs to be inherently uh, confrontational. Uh, And I think in a lot of ways, you know, a good exam, uh, even if it results in a deficiency letter and us identifying uh, certain issues, doesn't necessarily need to be an adversarial or kind of uh, painful process. It is one in which um, you know, we, we are often identifying issues, areas for improvement that often result in improvements, uh, to policies, procedures, and the compliance infrastructure of firms. Got it. And what is it,
0: um, it, you are, so as you say, it's a thousand people in the, in the division of exams, um, which are you in a subgroup which is particularly relevant to alternative data? Why, what is, what, what, why are you in alternative data?
1: Yeah, so um, when I came back to the SEC five, six years ago, uh, I was hired to be an advisor to, uh, a, 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 at the time, the head of risk and strategy and then ultimately the director of the examination uh, division. And um, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of discretion and autonomy on kind of where I thought I could add most value and areas of concern or emerging risks or threats or market practices in which w- we weren't really active, but I thought we should be. And alternative data was an area that for a number of reasons, the growth of the alternative data industry whether you look at it from the amount of money that was being spent uh, on alternative data, the growth in alternative data vendors, data sets, and the increased use of alternative data across a wide and increasingly diverse set of market participants really piqued my interest in this space. And I remember when I started looking into it and understanding that there, um, the the industry was maturing to have, Data brokers and speed dating events between buyers and sellers, and conferences and
0: podcasts.
1: The expert and a podcast, of course, <laughs> Mark. Um, I was like, you know, th- this is an area where we want to spend some time, energy, and resources. So that's what initially piqued my interest. But fast forward, and and you know that that's when I started in earnest to work with a number of people within the division to focus on this, pl- on this space. Uh, but fast forward to 2020, and I was asked to stand up and lead a new team within the division called the Event and Emerging Risk Exam Team, or what we call the EERT. Mm-hmm. And the EERT kind of has two different um, types of work that they primarily focus on. Um, They provide, you know, my team provides expertise and support in response to significant market events that have or could have a systemic impact uh, on the markets or place investor assets at risk, uh, such as exchange outages, liquidity events, cybersecurity or operational resiliency concerns. And kind of in that vein, internally, we're known as the division's rapid response or swap team. So we kind of jump in when something unforeseen is happening in the market, whether it be, um, like I said, kind of a, a cybersecurity event like solar winds, recent events as it relates to Russia and Ukraine, um, GameStop and you know all, all of the meme stock uh, events that happened. Um, my team works collaboratively across the exam program really to kind of insert um, capacity, Uh, expertise and personnel that kind of their bread and butter is working in an environment um, that represents kind of fast moving, unforeseen events. So that's kind of um, one of our remits. And then the second remit uh, is really Thinking about creating proactive, entrepreneurial initiatives and projects focused on emerging threats and risks, including a focus on alternative data, uh, and you know projects that are consistent with the priorities of of the division.
0: Just for context. So you are you're the SWAT team for the division of examination. So you're basically when there's a when there's some kind of fire, then you're there to put it out. One one part is putting it or either inspecting or putting out fires. As you say, the second part is looking at potential where might this go type risks. You know, this is developing in the market. How do we want to approach it as the SEC? You name check alternative data. Is that because alternative data is is dominating that department's uh, mind at the moment? Is is a kind of flashing, flashing thing on the on your on your dashboard saying, um, you know, this is the emerging thing that we need to be looking at? Or are you just name checking alternative data because you because you're on the alternative data podcast? A
1: little bit of both, Mark. You know, I think that we have been. Uh, alternative data is one of several. Emerging areas and, and and emerging kind of risks that we are focused on, but not solely. Um, you know, there, there are several other uh, areas that we have been focused on um, and, and continue to be focused on. Uh, you know, but it, it, so the division of examinations, kind of, I think, in the sake of transparency, there's a few things that we try to do to kind of. Um, we're, we're not kind of in the business of like a, a, a gotcha sort of game uh, where we go in and we're not kind of giving proper notice and kind of signaling to the marketplace as to kind of what we're interested in. So the division of examinations, I think this is our 10th year that we just published uh, what we call our examination priorities, And the examination priorities have really taken on greater prominence over the years and have become an important tool for the examination program. And the publication of the priorities, the public uh, publication uh, uh, of it provides investors, registrants, data vendors, kind of other market participants, transparency into areas where we believe uh, there are heightened risks to investors, registrants in the market. And underpinning the last decade of published priorities is the desire to really be transparent, as I mentioned before, about the heightened risks that we see and to highlight many of the areas examinations will focus on in the year ahead, ultimately protect you know, in, in the name of protecting investors, pre- preventing fraud and promoting and improving compliance. And um, you know, I, I would say, we hope that, the firm, that market participants leadership um, and kind of people that are listening to this podcast will review the priorities and consider your operations and internal controls in light of these higher risk areas to avoid potential compliance weaknesses or failures. Um, I would note that this year, 2022, and the past two years, we have specifically kind of name checked and included Alternative data in our priorities, um, and I think you know, I, I think there is something to take from that. Uh, we're pretty selective and um, thoughtful about what we identify in our priorities, and um, it doesn't necessarily reflect a hundred percent of what we're focused on uh, because there are other issues that aren't identified in our priorities. But by by us specifically calling it out. Um, And continuing exam work in this space, our participation in panels, conferences, industry events, other forums, including uh, today's podcast, clearly signal that this is an area that we focus on and that we'll continue to focus on and allocate resources, energy and and focus.
0: Okay, brilliant. So. I think that brings us up to the risk alert, which may be a reason that people are particularly listening to this episode right now. Um, The SEC recently issued a risk alert, um, which pertains to the alternative data space. Um, Could you just introduce... Uh, fairly briefly, just uh, what you see the, the risk alert is doing, what job you see it as doing, and what message you it was trying to get across.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, Mark, you know in addition to the priorities document that I just um, called out, we continue to maintain a steady pace of issuing risk alerts in the sake of transparency. Um, And also, by the way, you can find all of these materials I'm referencing on sec.gov forward slash exams, or if you just go to sec.gov, you know, it's pretty easy to, to, to find these things. So last year, the division published nine risk alerts across a variety of topics, and we continue to push out risk alerts in 2022. And these risk alerts are designed yet as another way to raise awareness of compliance and industry risks and are meant to encourage firms to think about their own policies and procedures in particular areas. And as you mentioned, Mark, you know, of note, the most recent risk alert that we issued in April 22 was titled Investment Advisor MNPI Compliance Issues. Uh, MNPI stands for material non-public information. And um, this risk alert touched on several areas in which MNPI concerns exist, but it prominently highlighted alternative data and was the first time in writing issued publicly that the division of exams put something out there beyond signaling our attention and focus on this space. And you know, before I kind of jump in or we jump into um, the risk alert, let me just kind of cover the most salient and relevant area of the securities law uh, that, that's kind of called out in this risk alert. So it's 204 cap a or 204A of the Investment Advisors Act and 204A requires investment advisors to establish, maintain and enforce written policies and procedures that are reasonably designed, taking into consider the nature of the advisor's business to prevent the misuse of material non-public information by the advisor or any person associated with the, the advisor. And in the risk alert, we focus on deficiencies that we've noted as it relates to registrants, policies and procedures related to alternative data.
0: OK, I think this then might be a good moment to, to turn to the very patient, Kelly, um, who's who's been doing a, a, a great job um, waiting. So sorry about that, Kelly. Um, but, Kelly, I believe that you might have said to me earlier and correct me if I'm wrong, that this risk alert is uh, perhaps not worthy of the amount of um, uh, not worthy amount of worry that it might have caused in some circles. And the reason being that what it states is essentially the same stuff that you've been saying to your clients for the last two to three years, which is essentially, you've got to have a good procedure in place for knowing where the data is coming from and, and stuff that you can show the SEC if they knock on the door to show that you're doing your best to have good practice. So this is stuff we knew before but it's just been issued and codified very helpfully by the SEC but nothing massively new is that is that is that fair
2: so i would say yes and no to that characterization so just as a reminder my clients are private funds so they're the hedge funds and private equity funds that adam and his colleagues are examining and i agree with a lot of that adam said and really have a very healthy respect for the exam staff and the work that they do i will say while it's not intended to be confrontational exams do cause a certain amount of anxiety among our clients. They really want to do well. And when you have a new area like alternative data where there's new risks, we're trying to understand the SEC's approach, for a few years the our clients were trying to get insights from the exams. So this risk alert, it's, it's important that the staff put it out. We're very appreciative of that. And I think there's a big difference between me saying it on podcasts and platforms and getting to my clients and the SEC taking an official position in writing. So it's a really important first step in that regard. Uh, And it does reinforce what we knew about the importance of policies and procedures. One place that I did note where the risk alert, I think if you're only reading the risk alert and don't have other context, whether you're a fund or a vendor in the space who's curious about what's going on here, because it does indirectly impact you. I think you might not really appreciate the intense focus by the staff in these exams. And you might take false comfort that just having policies and procedures is enough. So while I I think it's great that the staff did put out the alert, that was the one thing I would caution is that um, just having policies and procedures that are consistently applied, if you're not really drilling down on how that data is sourced and pushing pretty hard in diligence, in many cases, I think will not be enough.
0: So the suggestion being the risk alert Is you you can't just kind of put in a procedure and forget about it. You actually really need to be showing your proactivity and you're actually properly thinking about it on an ongoing basis. That you are really aggressively uh, attacking this subject. Is that exactly? Yeah. Um, You mentioned Kelly. You mentioned that um, you your clients might be frustrated frustrated or or wish that they could receive more back from exams. Um, Is that what you mean is that the SEC kind of uh, comes to a company and, and, and conducts a kind of SEC audit of some sort and then goes away and sometimes the client never hears and the market never hears what came of that exam and actually it'd be quite useful if the SEC said, look, we, this is what we found, this is what we liked, this is what we didn't like, and, and that's what potentially there might be some frustration from the market that that isn't happening. No,
2: so the SEC at the end of an exam always gives you feedback. You either get a deficiency letter telling you things that they thought you should have done better or could be doing better and that are wrong, or the SEC will let you know that they've concluded the exam with no deficiencies. So you do get feedback about that, that particular exam. But why I think the exam program is so successful and so important to the markets, it's not just for the people being examined at any given point, but the entire market is trying to get insights because they want to do well on exams, right? It's not like cheating, but in school, if you have some insights into what the teacher is going to put on the test, you're going to do better on that test. So when you're in an emerging area and you're realizing there's some risk there and you expect there's going to be scrutiny by the staff. But unless you're actually in the exam, you don't exactly know what that's gonna look for, you're always trying to glean insights from the SEC. And I think in an emerging area, it's always gonna be the case that there's some period of time where the staff is using the exams to kind of learn as much as to examine. And while there's a certain amount of, that we don't know, because obviously you can't put out the risk alert until you've actually done enough exams that you have something to say in the risk alert about your observations. But that period for our clients in these areas can be because they want to do so well in these exams can be very difficult because they, there isn't enough guidance, especially in an area like alternative data, where we don't have case law that says how the securities laws apply here. And we're trying to take laws that were written decades ago and apply them to new technology.
0: Could that just be... The problem with being an early adopter is that you know it's it's almost your fault for being first. You know, is that the SEC from now on, now that we've got a risk alert, then people have something to go on. But uh, this is this is just a problem with with a new technology, and now we're beginning to build the kind of not the case law, but the equivalent. You know, the the, the regulations.
2: Right, exactly. And what you hope in an exam is that you'll get credit from the staff for your efforts. Right, you're in a new area you're identifying risks, it might not be perfect, but you really are trying to get it right when there isn't a lot of guidance.
0: So Adam, perhaps you could go into a little bit of detail as to, as to what 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 a client can expect, sorry, one of Kelly's clients, what a fund can expect from an SEC exam.
1: Sure, so maybe, maybe we'll start out by, you know, laying out some considerations or things that um, people may want to think about to be better prepared for, for an exam um, and, and to um, basically um, put yourself in a position so that if you are the subject of an exam and we're looking at alternative data, you can kind of think about how to better be prepared um, in, in the exam context. So um, let's start out there. So, I think it's important, you know, to, to Kelly's point that she was making before, to describe the relevant policies and procedures used during the exam program uh, or exam period and how they evolve, have evolved over time. I think, Mark, to your point, that there are still best practices and um, standardization and guidance from compliance consultants, law firms, and kind of firms sharing information amongst one another that really, um, in in my view, have resulted in a significant evolution and maturity uh, or increasing level of maturity as it relates to policies and procedures. So I think in preparing for an exam, being prepared to talk about the policies and procedures that are in place today but also how they've evolved over the past few years and how onboarding and uh, ongoing due diligence has been applied through that evolution. I think also thinking about kind of the narrative and kind of what you wanna share with the exam team and being honest and upfront about where your policies and procedures, internal controls and systems are aspirational and still to be implemented and also identifying gaps in your control environment. Mark, I think to the question that you had before about like what does an exam look like and kind of you know the adversarial nature of it, I think the, the more that a registrant is upfront with us uh, and honest about any issues, um, in our opinion, or at least in my opinion, uh, it often makes for a, uh, a less adversarial type of relationship where a firm is being upfront candid and forthright about any holes in their issues or areas where kind of, like I said, policies and procedures or controls uh, are, are on paper, but are somewhat aspirational or haven't been fully implemented yet. I, I think also having a good handle on your data inventory. And what I mean by that is being prepared to be able to communicate to us as an exam team kind of what data sets you have onboarded or considered what data vendors uh, you're you're working with. I think oftentimes in the exam context, when we ask for an inventory of what data is being used and the compilation of that data inventory takes an extensive period of time, um, it sometimes gives us the sense that the legal and compliance professionals may not have a very good system or organizational uh, process in place to have a good handle on what in fact is being used. And then I think like, you know, similarly, having a way to produce records associated with the initial due diligence and onboarding and subsequent monitoring uh, helps us understand what you were thinking at the time, uh, whether you decided to bring on a data set uh, or, or, or not and do it in a contemporaneous fashion
0: i've got a i've got a um kind of bigger question. I was recently talking to a relatively senior person who had just left a um a, a household name hedge fund um who was saying that their approach to regulation was to th- try to look ahead and try to avoid not just breaking the law now but also breaking the law tomorrow so they wouldn't buy data uh, which they thought was likely to run afoul of alternative data regulation in the years to come, because that's where they feel the SEC is going, which to me seems a little bit like it's not, it's trying not to just play by the rules. It's trying to be well within the zone. It's trying to be like, if the rules are a red line, then it's trying to be away from the red line and kind of deep in the safe zone. Um, Is that is that your, uh, the SEC's, a kind of the, presumably, it's best practice. But if you're doing an examination and someone is bang on the red line in all ways, is that a negative in a way? Is that that someone is clinging so close to the rules that they are, you know, that that it can be a little bit frowned upon
1: uh, in, in 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 a way? Does that does that make sense? It, it it does make sense, and I think that there are firms that are still kind of figuring out uh, where the line is as it relates to their use. Of alternative data or other sources of incoming information that inform their investment decision-making process. In the ex- exam context, the way that that plays out, Mark, is um, I'd like to have a conversation with the portfolio managers, with the leaders of the firm, with the legal and compliance staff, and simply ask them about, kind of, you know, help me understand what your risk. Tolerance is as it relates to alternative data. What is your philosophy and kind of what are the lines that you're willing to kind of go up to but not cross? And, you know, that's the starting point to kind of understand how they've thought about it and if they've thought about it. Um, And those conversations are really, really insightful for us uh, to understand the firm's risk tolerance and their awareness of the potential issues that could arise um, in bringing in alternative data that might represent material non-public information and what policies and procedures they've put in place and implemented to mitigate that risk. So it's, it's less about kind of judgment about their risk tolerance, but more about understanding their risk tolerance and how they've uh, 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 created a compliance infrastructure that allows them to monitor whether they're operating their business and making decisions in accordance with that articulated risk tolerance.
0: You're almost (laughs) looking at their posture. Um, You're looking at the way they are Uh, the way they approach the subject um, as, as uh, almost as much as as what they're actually doing. But what's perhaps what you're listening for a kind of the, 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 it's the soft signals of, of how how they're thinking about it, the way they the way they're approaching it.
1: Th- that's right, Mark. And, you know, the, and, and Kelly and I have talked about this in in, in previous panels is um, especially when we're talking with uh, the legal and compliance professionals. um Sizing up not just their risk tolerance, but whether they are um, empowered and have the appropriate resources, backing and kind of support from the leadership at the firm to push back, to hold the line and to say no when they're getting too close to that line or they've crossed that line.
2: So at, at Mark, one thing I think is important to focus on when we talk about the exams that should be helpful for both the vendors that are listening to the podcast as well as to the private fund community is the diligence process because that informs so much of what we're doing with the vendors. And in the exams that I've seen that my clients have gone through, Adam mentioned the inventory that he gets. And then often there I see a follow-up request where the staff will pick a certain number of vendors and say, show me your diligence files. And that's where the staff really goes very deep and wants to see what's in those files. Okay, you have a DDQ, but what about this response? How would you get comfortable with that response? I see that you got a consent from this vendor, but how were you comfortable with the language in this consent? So that's really an area where I think even the vendors have had a lot of curiosity because they have trouble understanding why all of a sudden starting a few years ago, I was getting on the phone requesting these diligence calls. And so were other others in the private fund community and suddenly asking a whole bunch of questions that they had never gotten before.
0: Let's, let's move on to the next subject if possible. Adam, would you like to perhaps it'd be best if Adam, if you just began by laying out what the sec's position on informed consensus.
1: Sure. So, um, well, this is my personal view on informed consent. Um, So I think when we talk about in, informed consent, let, let me just kind of share something that I think I've I've seen with increasing frequency even over the last few weeks or, or months is that um, there are data collection practices that often collect massive amounts of data that are seemingly... Unrelated to the service being provided to the end user. And sometimes um, in that interaction between the end user and you know the app or other kind of service uh, or technology that's providing a service, um, there is uh, a mechanism that creates a, a, a platform for the app or other technology to uh, get consent from, from the end user. Um, but what I have been seeing and following, and this is kind of not a new phenomenon, but I think I've seen it with increasing frequency is um, investigative reporting or media um, stories that highlight Data collection practices that end up really surprising the user base. Um, so over even the past you know month or two, there have been stories about uh, educational apps that are tracking the location of the users of those apps. Similarly, um, apps. That are used for praying or religious purposes, uh, apps that are used for meditation or other healthcare related services, where users are often kind of downloading these things with some understanding that, um, you know, especially when you're downloading a free app, that, you know, your data might be collected for marketing and advertising purposes. Um, but I think that sometimes when the collection practices are exposed, the data collection that was happening before that that, that story came out, um, the data collection often stops or is significantly altered or changed uh, based on an outcry from the end users. And I think from our perspective from a securities law perspective and how it impacts our registrants is really trying to understand what our market participants that we examine have done in their due diligence process first to understand whether end user consent was actually obtained or whether they're just relying on a data vendor to make an assertion that end user consent was obtained? And do they just trust the reps and warranties of that data vendor, that the underlying kind of data collection uh, mechanisms actually were obtaining end user consent? Or is the registrant actually going downstream to conduct some independent validation to understand whether the assertions being made by the third party vendor are valid and accurate. So that's kind of the look that we take from a legal and compliance perspective. But the other thing from a business perspective uh, is oftentimes if a firm's models or investment thesis is is informed by some of these data sets that simply based on some uh, investigative reporting or some outing of some um, questionable data collection methods, data is cut off from that registrant and their ability to continue running their models that was reliant on that data set coming in is suddenly and unexpectedly cut off are advisors disclosing that risk Are do they have kind of plans to have a backup data source when when that data source is cut off? So from a business perspective, you know, we're also trying to understand how firms are thinking about informed consent, especially in light of the fact that lots of data sets have been significantly cut off or hampered Um once end user consent or kind of informed consent um, is is kind of a focus of reporting and kind of really made visible to the end users that are sometimes surprised by how their data is being collected and ultimately used.
0: I see a problem with this. And my problem that I foresee is that you are beginning to rely on the guy on the street. Um, and you 're beginning to guy, rely on the guy on the street to a read the terms and conditions of everything that he 's signing and signing up to um, you 're essentially relying on the guy on the street to care <laughs> because and to care at the moment where he 's signing and to and and the risk is that there could be an awful lot of uh, the the risk is that the guy on the street could sign up to this thing or girl could sign up to this thing and then discovered that their data is being used in lots of ways that they didn't, they didn't fully understand and they had given their consent, but was it, was it informed? uh, You know, that's, that's for me an ambiguity. You're beginning to, to, to rest on the civilian who is, got an, a, an element of apathy, which, which a business doesn't. Um, do you see that being a potential issue? Do you see what I'm getting at?
1: I, I, I do see what you're getting at. You know, I think in the exam context, the way that we're trying to better understand this issue is, first, was end user consent actually obtained or not? Um, because there are ways to obtain data without end user consent. And as a starting point, um, figuring out if end user consent was obtained, if there were assertions made that end user consent wa- what was obtained, th- that's a much more binary problem and gets into whether the data was legally and lawfully collected.
2: Can I just respond to that though, Adam? I completely agree, personally, that informed consent is is a great goal and a goal that we should be working toward. But that is something that the consumers and the business community have been begging Congress to do, and Congress so far has not weighed in. And also, it seems like the FTC is starting to get more active, but there hasn't been a lot of guidance in this area. So we run into this situation where we'll have vendors who are complying with the law. You know, the laws are focused on personal information and all the alt data I've seen is de-identified. And so the laws that have thought about de-identified data have excluded de-identified data. They might, or they might say how you have to anonymize it, but they, once it's anonymized or de-identified, they stop regulating it. So there are instances where our vendors are absolutely complying with the law, but the concern is that the SEC will say that's not enough. And there's a weirdness to this, even for someone like me who really believes in informed consent, that's really not something that necessarily should be coming from the securities laws and hedge funds and private equity funds saying, I'll get in trouble for insider trading if I don't hold you to a standard beyond where the law is. And it really should be coming from Congress or the FTC or somebody that regulates the vendors and says, this is now the standard. And then once that standards are articulated, then absolutely the hedge funds and the private equity funds will say, if you don't meet that very clear standard, we won't buy your data. But right now, it feels like we sometimes get penalized if we're not holding vendors to an even higher standard than what the current law requires.
0: Is that, Kelly? Is that because you see this being the, the person needing to be represented as the man on the street who would be represented by Congress, whereas the SEC is representing the interests of the market participant?
2: I think that's part of it. And I think it's also where is this an MMPI, Material Non Public Information Insider Trading Securities Law issue? And where is this a consumer protection issue? And I agree there's some overlap, but in some ways, because the SEC has been so active here where other uh, agencies or Congress hasn't been, there is a weirdness that we will say to a vendor, you're collecting data in a certain way. When a hedge fund gets it, it's not okay. But when a corporate gets it, it's fine, even though it's the exact same data. I don't believe that consumers who are concerned about their data are concerned only when the hedge funds and the private equity funds get it. I think they're concerned more broadly, but when it's the SECs using the securities laws and we're not doing more on the privacy and consumer protection laws, there's a certain weirdness.
1: Yeah, and and let me just try to um, make something clear. So um, in the exam context, right, we have regulatory authority over certain market participants. And uh, for the most part, with very, very few exceptions, um, most alternative data vendors um, are not regulated by by the SEC. So um, our evaluation really is at the, the 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 registrant or kind of market participant uh, level, mostly in the investment advisor space, and. I, I, I want to just kind of really make this point because I think it's important and it's touched on within our risk alert. And I think that um, I, I encourage you to kind of read it with some attention is flagging of, of, of red flags. So when, when we're talking about informed consent or really lots of other issues as it relates to Um, a market participant buying data from an alternative data vendor, any data vendor. Um, If you are relying on certain reps and warranties from a data vendor in order to know whether you could trust them that, in fact, informed consent is being obtained or any other assertions that they're making about the lawful manner in which they're collecting data. I think it's really important to touch on something that um, I haven't seen um, really implemented as kind of an industry-wide practice yet, Uh, but I hope that it continues to mature uh, and, and become part of what we see more in the exam context is uh, you know, we think about conducting due diligence on a risk basis, right? So we don't believe that kind of every data set or vendor should have exactly the same due diligence process, but it should be tailored to kind of um, the, the, the risk tolerance and profile Uh, of the registrant and also the data set and the attributes of the data set, and importantly, the data vendor. And what I'd like to see more of in order to inform that risk-based analysis of what due diligence should be informed by and a firm's level of comfort in relying on reps and warranties made by vendors is some independent research done on those vendors, and sometimes the key principles behind those vendors. And we see that as it relates to vendor due diligence in other spaces, but we, ha- I haven't yet seen that um, happen frequently or consistently as it relates to uh, independent research on alternative data vendors. All right, so you could kind of think about like a DDQ that asks a simple question about, you know, have you been the subject of litigation? And like, is a market participant simply taking that vendor at their word or are they doing some basic public record searches to validate that assertion? Is a market participant running some media searches or other public record searches to understand whether there's litigation, negative news stories, or other publicly available information such that if there was concerns about the vendor or key principles associated with that vendor, that that would help them inform their due diligence process and how much they wanted to dig in to that vendor. And and, and importantly, whether they could or how they should rely or not rely on assertions or reps and warranties from that vendor. You could just imagine, Mark, if uh, if a market participant is finding a lot of concerning information in the media about a certain data collection practice by a vendor or a downstream source of information that the vendor is obtaining data from, We'd want to really see that in the analysis by the firm. And we would want to see how that information that's independently sourced is incorporated into the due diligence process.
2: Just to respond to that, we're doing a lot of it. And the the vendor diligence process, it's incredibly inefficient, right? When you have 200 funds all asking the same vendor the same questions, it's not really efficient for markets. And where we become this kind of, private police of the vendors, while some of it obviously is important where you have some high risk data sets. At some point, we're putting so many resources into the diligence of the vendor that I worry that it's actually gone beyond what would be necessary for investor protection, and that it's actually diverting resources from places that are much higher risk. So now you're spending time on data sets that cost $10,000 and your legal bills are going to be well more than that because you're not sure where to draw lines and you don't want to get in trouble because you didn't look under every rock before you approved that vendor. And where I worry about that too is for the bigger funds, they can absorb those costs. For the smaller funds, you're a small fund, you have a CCO, they don't have a technical background, they want to get the same credit card transaction data that everybody's getting, or they want to get the geolocation data that everybody's getting, but they don't understand this world They don't understand SDKs. It's not really reasonable for them to go out and get outside counsel every time they want a data set. Don't we lead to this informational asymmetry because there's so much inefficiency and so much that we're expecting before a fund can onboard a data vendor or continue using its
0: data?
1: Adam? Yeah. I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from, Kelly. And I do think that as the industry has matured, um, I think that there has been, in some ways, a democratization of DDQs, um, due diligence, you know, best practices, web scraping guidelines, et cetera, that I think in some ways uh, helps to, to create kind of some starting point for firms that could be really helpful so that um, you know, best practices and lessons learned uh, are, are really being shared amongst firms. Uh, but I, I, I do hear your point. And, and listen, I think that in a, a relatively nascent space, there does seem to be room to squeeze out some of these inefficiencies. Uh, and I do think, you know, and I, I know that you're, you're part of some you know, working groups with the FISD. And kind of other organizations that I think, um, and I'm not advocating for standardization or thinking that um, you know th- there's going to be a one-size-fit-all f- one-size-fits-all DDQ that is kind of you know what everybody should be using or policies and procedures. But I do think in some ways the work that the industry is doing as they're learning and as they're maturing. Starts to create more of a foundational set of of expectations um, that that I think improves compliance across across the industry. Uh, and I think you know, and what I've seen is it you know it's 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 um, the the vendors are coming to the table to try to um, in, improve that process as as is the buy side. Um, you know, and, and and I think the more that Firms on both sides of the table uh, are approaching each other with at least kind of a decent starting point and vendors are proactively providing information that they know the buy side is going to be looking for and proactively answering questions and helping the buy side kind of have confidence in the information that they're providing, I think some of those inefficiencies um, will, will diminish over time. But ultimately, I think the responsibility for conducting due diligence will always remain with the with the firm, with the buyers of the data uh, and, and their chief, chief compliance officer and, and the compliance staff. But I think that some of these things that are developing are... Um, creating kind of opportunities for efficiency to get to kind of um, you know the, the the right answers and an effective and efficient and robust due diligence process um, in, in a more efficient and less resource intensive manner
0: one would possibly expect that the sector the whole market will become, that people have been saying for, for a while that consolidation is coming on the, on the provider side as well. And so potentially there becomes fewer larger sources of alternative data. And so you need to do fewer of these due diligence exercises in order to access them, et cetera. It could be that as regulation arrives. So the market becomes more ready for regulation.
2: Yeah. So I, I take your consolidation point. We've started to see a little bit of it. I. See, consolidation working both ways. There are some large vendors who are excellent at this. And when they do scoop up smaller vendors, because they put them through their diligence program and have such good diligence materials, it does promote certain efficiencies. It's been really helpful. On the flip side of that, we sometimes have big vendors who are in non-traditional spaces where they haven't been asked these questions. They are now getting into alternative data, or they've become so big that it's hard to push them on diligence, and they're a little more resistant to it. So I agree with you, Mark. I think ultimately consolidation should help some of this, but it's been a little painful getting there because um, some of the bigger vendors are, are resistant to it.
1: I think the one point that I would make, and you know, I, I don't have an opinion on consolidation, uh, but what I would say is in the exam context, it's very important for us to see Due diligence, um, and at the data set level, um, meaning that you know if if there is a vendor in which you know you're buying two, four, ten data sets from, we do expect to see things at the at the vendor level, right? Some of those those kind of risk based analysis um, considerations that I discussed that for, uh, before, but lots of data vendors sell pretty diverse data sets that require really different analyses as it relates to how the data was collected. Um, and you know, just to go back to that data inventory that I talked about before that we often request in the exam context, you could just kind of imagine an Excel sheet or wh- whatever kind of the format is. Each line item really doesn't represent a vendor, uh, but really represents a data set. Um, and, and that's kind of the way that we are digging in in the exam context to understand uh, how, how a market participant got comfortable um, in, in, in looking at things. So I think even if there was consolidation, I just wanted to make that point that it's really important to conduct diligence at the data set level.
0: Brilliant. Uh, web scraping. Um, so I've got a I've got a broader question that so when I had Kelly on this on this podcast the first time on the regulation episode, we talked about the Q versus LinkedIn case. And uh, so and that has since come through in to as as I understand it, to consolidate the position um, that uh, that had previously been established in, the, in, in, in that case which is that essentially the web scraping if you don't need to sign into an account then it's okay but if so if you're kind of anything that you can google essentially and without having to sign in with a with a password and a name then that's okay to scrape and if you are having to go in then um you ju- then you can't scrape is this so this the hiq versus linkedin case was it was most. It's been through several several courts. It was most recently in the in the Ninth Circuit Court. What is the relationship between that uh, legal body and the SEC? Is the SEC waiting on the Ninth Circuit to set the tone for web scraping, um, and then the SEC enforces it? What's What's that relationship?
2: So I think we have to back up a bit because the High Q case is getting to. It's not getting to the securities laws, which is what the SEC is focused on. It's getting to a different issue. We've actually never had a case that I'm aware of that it looks at the securities laws and web scraping. But the SEC, and what we've seen, has been very focused on web scraping and exams. And for a lot of our clients, that came as a surprise because, for the most part, web scraping is focused on public information. And you know, when we were talking about the risk alert earlier and 204 cap A, and material non-public information. Traditionally, that is focused on non-public information, so not things you got off the website. So the focus we have seen, and this wasn't addressed in the risk alert, but an expectation that there are policies and procedures around web scraping. So that, and also, you know, in some cases, pre-approval and monitoring. So that's, that's one place where I think that would have been really helpful in the risk alert only because it's not intuitive to a lot of our clients that they should be focused on public information. And I think the Haiku case, even though not a securities case, has helped a little bit in terms of industry standards about where the lines should be in web scraping, as web scraping is ubiquitous and people get more familiar with it. But I think there is still focus by the SEC and some uncertainty about what exactly we should be doing where that public information is concerned.
0: Would you like to see the SEC name-checking key versus LinkedIn, or is it a different world?
2: Uh, well, I'd like to see clearer standards on web scraping. What I think would be helpful, just because I worry, is that we don't want to spend a disproportionate amount of our time on low-risk information. As Adam mentioned earlier, the staff usually embraces a risk-based approach. And generally, if we're worried about insider trading, public information is going to be lower risk. So there are places where web scraping crosses the line and is no longer web scraping. That would be in cases of hacking. There are also things that HiQ didn't address, which we would be concerned about from a securities laws perspective of where your interactions with the website have become deceptive in some way. And I think if we had clearer guidelines so we can separate out the, okay, this is just automated collection of public data that we've always gotten, And know this is where you're starting to get close to a different line. And that's where you should spend your time. As we get more comfortable with web scraping generally, I think that would be helpful just so that we're putting our resources into where the greatest risks are and not spending too much time on what's truly public information.
1: Adam, where are you at on web scraping? So as it relates to web scraping, we'd want to see a robust set of policies and procedures that dictate how web scraping occurs at the registrant, any prohibited practices the firm has articulated, and we want to know how the registrant is ensuring compliance with those policies and procedures. And, and I think, you know, Kelly kind of referenced this a bit, is that w- what we've seen over time in the exam context is that, is that there's a move towards centralizing the monitoring and approval of web scraping to the legal and compliance function. And where we have a lack of monitoring and tracking of what scraping is going on in the first place, it makes it really difficult in the exam context for compliance or for the examination team to get confidence that legal compliance is providing a check and validating that the collection practices are in accordance and in compliance with the articulated policies and procedures and any um, prohibited practices um, that, that they ha- ha- have articulated. And, um, you know, so just to, to, to explain this a little bit more, right, there's, there's um, so, a, a firm that could um, enable the technology team uh, or the data analysts to kind of do web scraping and the policy kind of dictates that, hey, if you think you're crossing any of these lines, raise your hand and talk to compliance uh, versus a policy that says, if you have some web scraping that you would like to conduct, come to legal or compliance in the first place. And when we've seen the former, where there are kind of lots of nuances to um, prohibited practices, some of them are written or unwritten, uh, and some of them kind of are up to interpretation, uh, what we've seen when the discretion is given um, to kind of you know, who, whoever is at the firm that's sometimes, you know, where we see issues arise when, again, we might, we might do some sampling of web scraping that hasn't gone through legal and compliance and doesn't necessarily seem to align with the policies and procedures or kind of articulated philosophy or risk tolerance, uh, that's been communicated to us through, through interviews. So, um, I think that that's how we approach looking at web scraping in the exam context. And then the other thing that we look at that I think is important and we, we have seen some issues in this space is um, there's sometimes kind of in-house web scraping that takes place. And then sometimes a firm will outsource or engage with a vendor uh, to, to, to do some other web scraping. and. There isn't always you kind know, of a complete alignment with what the com- what what the firm is comfortable doing in house versus what they're comfortable having a third party vendor doing on their behalf, even if they're really kind of directing those practices. And um, I think you know if, if there are any deltas between what a firm is comfortable or is doing in-house versus what they're hiring a third-party vendor to do on their behalf. I think it's important for the firm to be able to explain those deltas, why they exist and how they've thought through that. Um,
0: So broadly, uh,
1: we've just had a period of
0: people like kelly um providing the guidance which uh, from uh, well uh, from what the what she's been able to glean from the sec um so we've had a period of 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 uh, uh, Kelly and her ilk um, uh, basically setting the tone to an extent which which she's got from from the SEC now we've had a risk alert um, which is kind of the Moses's 10 commandments tablet As uh, the first one has come down <laughs> from 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 on high and um, what's next what would be the next in in terms of developing a, a a kind of regulatory coverage of a sector like this do we is it what do we expect in the future is it more risk alerts is there, an, is there a more um, firm type of uh, you know is there is there a, a an even a, a more established form of rules, which 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 emerges later on. How how does how does it normally work when a new sector like alternative data is is coming into being regulated?
2: I don't think we'll see another risk alert on alternative data anytime soon. I think this will continue to be an area of focus for the staff. I think forums like this, where the staff is speaking and able to answer questions, even though Adam's speaking in his personal capacity, I do think it provides a lot of insight. And I do expect, and we've said this for a while, that we will see more enforcement activity. Obviously, we saw the case against App Annie last year. We could see other cases against vendors. But I think at some point, we will see a case against the hedge fund or a private equity fund. Because that part of the Advisors Act that Adam talked about earlier, we called 204 Cap A. It's From a law perspective, it's relatively easy for the staff to bring the case Because all they have to do is say, we see a risk of MMPI, and we don't think you had policies and procedures around this that were adequate. So I do think App Annie, even though it was a case against the vendor, was a warning shot in that regard, right? The case was, you know, when you read the case, it's very focused on the diligence. And the fraud was really, the securities fraud was because the lies, the diligence was repeating, that the vendor was repeating in diligence the hedge funds and the private equity funds so that's where i would expect in terms of official pronouncements but anytime the staff is willing to issue a risk alert it was certainly welcomed by my client
1: yeah and i i think mark you know i i think in this space and in in the advisor space um we, we we're, we're unlikely to kind of offer any sort of kind of prescriptive guidance uh, of, of like exactly how to handle uh, alternative data. It's, you know, we're much more of kind of a principle based uh, regime in, in this space where there's unlikely to be anything, you know, a check the box type of thing that you must do X, Y and Z in order to be compliant with, you know, with, with the law. Um, I, and also, I, I just don't think it works in this space because um, the, the there's there's just facts and circumstances, and mm-hmm. you know the type of firm and data set and vendor kind of dictates a very tailored approach uh, to how to conduct due diligence and and how and when to kind of keep on top of your data sets and vendors and and to to revisit them and to monitor their, them on an ongoing basis. So. I would not imagine anything prescriptive coming out, but I mean, if you look at where we've come in the past few years, you know, a few years ago we were kind of relatively silent, but learning about the topic and doing some exams in the background, and then starting to signal to the market through our priorities a few years ago that this was an area of interest and focus. Um, and you know, then the App Annie case, which which Kelly mentioned. Um, and the most recent risk alert, and then there, there was also a quote this week, uh, from, from the director of of enforcement, um, kind of noting that he sees a tremendous amount of risk in this space, uh, which clearly indicates, and, you know, I mean, they also profiled the App Annie case, um, you know, in, in, in their year end report, uh, and have discussed it, uh, as a pretty important case, uh. And and to complement all of those kind of public uh, pronouncements and efforts and exams and and, and, the enforcement action that we brought, um, continued discussion and dialogue with the industry uh, is something that we're doing with increased frequency. Um, Speaking events, panels, and um, this is my first podcast. Uh, I think certainly the first podcast that I think we've um, somebody from the SEC has you know uh, talked about alternative data in, in detail like this so um, nice. I think we'll continue to engage with the industry, continue to do exams in this space and as Kelly noted before, I think that we have become uh, really smart and capable of digging in uh, pretty substantively in this space while also continuing to learn um, you know it, it, there probably isn't an exam that goes by that even, when I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what's going on in the industry, I continue to learn uh, on every exam. And I think likewise, the registrants um, learn from and benefit from our experience working across lots of different registrants and having exposure to uh, best practices, uh, having exposure to deficiencies that we've written up at, at other firms. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it's just resulted in an increased attention, energy and focus, not just at the SEC, uh, but at the registrant uh, that, that we examine. And, and uh, hopefully by having a platform like I do today on this podcast, where we probably have a lot of data vendors uh, in, in the audience, we'll continue to provide uh, the needed push Uh, to continue to improve compliance, going to understand where registrants are coming from when they're getting uh, a a ton of questions and and kind of the buyers of their data are digging in Um, that there's just kind of an awareness of where this pressure and interest is coming from.
0: Fantastic. I think that's, I think that's enough. I think we've, uh, I think we've done it justice. So um, as much as, as much as we can, given the constraints. So um, Adam, uh, and Kelly. Kelly, thank you very much for coming back. Adam, thank you very much for being the first SEC representative to talk about alternative data on a podcast. That is a, uh, I'm going to have that on a written on a wall, I think, uh, in my house. Um, either way, thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Mark.
2: Thank you.